0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals beat over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Our Dairy NRC series of Real Science webinars was very well received, and tonight we're talking about the chapter on protein and amino acids. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts tonight here at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight we're welcoming uh, Dr. Mark Hannigan. Um, as the author of this section, we're looking forward to a very lively discussion with him and his guests. Dr. Hannigan, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thank you, Scott. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background, Mark, and, and how were you selected to be the author of the proteins and amino acids section?
1: Uh, you know, I really have no idea on that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's probably Lucky. like, who do they think they can talk into this you know, massive amount of work and, and it's too stupid to say no. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very well. And you're um, currently at Virginia Tech. Tell us what you do there.
1: I'm a professor in dairy science. Uh, I think we're maybe the last separate department, but we're in, in the process of merging with animal science. So.
0: All right, very well, Mark. It's been over 20 years since the last NRC, now called NASM, and I'm sure this required a lot of time and effort from both you and uh, the rest of the team to create the latest edition. Um, speaking of team, I understand that you've brought several of them with you. Would you take a few moments moments to uh, introduce them?
1: Uh, yeah, the colleagues and, and, you know, people that did a lot of the work as well include, you know, of course, all of the committee members. But uh, Dr. Jeff Ferkins from Ohio State has is, is joined us today. And so as Dr. Helene LaPierre from Ag Canada or Agri-Food in Canada. I forgot what the, you know, what the appropriate name is.
2: they change it all the time
1: (laughs) (laughs) just when you get used to it and uh, you know of course everyone did a massive amount of work maybe maybe jeff and helen had a better idea of how much work this was going to be but in typical fashion i underestimated the amount of work by at least uh three or fourfold you know more than i typically underestimate so
0: yeah understandable so welcome, Helene and, and Jeff. I look forward to having yep. a, a lively conversation with you. Helene, I understand uh, you're you're taking this virtual pub thing seriously. What are you drinking tonight?
2: Oh, I had to prepare something that was made from Quebec. So this is a mixture of fresh um, lemon juice, I was like, and um, a, a nut liquor, which is made in Quebec, and a little bit of maple syrup. So it's... Oh. Uh, really, uh, refreshing, really dangerous in summertime because you just feel it's like lemonade, but a little bit of ice and it, it's really, really good.
0: Ah, sounds so good.
2: I even brought the bottle. I have to show you the bottle because it's really nice.
0: Ah, very nice. Nice. Yeah. Excellent.
2: So Really good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, welcome. It's always uh, nice to have somebody from the Ohio state university. I'm a grad myself. Well, wait a minute, I haven't, I haven't introduced Clay yet. Clay, he's back in the, in the co-host chair, welcome. And Clay, what are you drinking tonight?
3: I have a new apple cider here, courtesy of Stacy, our producer, uh, an apple cider from Kansas.
0: Mark, to get us started, I'd like to dig into the approach and the process you employed to bring the protein amino acid chapter together. What was that process? Where did you start? Well, I'd, I'd have to start
1: off and say that, you know, this was a, a, an effort, you know, at least on the writing and, and, you know, of the three of us, really. And so I, I I was not the lead on this chapter, actually. I was the lead on the modeling chapter. Okay. And so I, I ended up sort of being the caretaker of the equations, I guess, you know, when they were developed. And I did work on some, but it, it's certainly Helen and, and Jeff had a huge part in, in that and they did way more of the writing on that chapter than than i did i, I made a small contribution
4: one of the things i'll just uh, jump in and say uh, you know we started from the beginning developing a bunch of uh, metadata to be used so there was a lot of a lot of work some of that was uh, by the NENP. i guess that's how you say it mark was a leader of that i joined in we we collected a lot of data and sort of you would say cleaned it and refined it and, and a lot of that was done with um in, in coordination with the way mark system was set up so that ultimately it could be used in this larger model so there was a lot of background a lot of players involved in that and uh that that really was a big advantage of this of this time compared with the last nrc
1: yeah fortunately uh Gail Bateman, who was actually a postdoc with Jimmy Clark, and he's he's passed away now, but he was at LSU at the time, and or well, later he was. He, he uh, captured all the data from the last NRC. Otherwise, I'm not sure Jeffrey would have had it because uh, he you know he's the one that had it, and it was you know some ten years later when we sort of drug that back up and and uh, worked on getting it all cleaned up and getting all the diet sorted out as much as we could. I mean, we that's the problem with all this is that with entry of data, you're always going to have errors. And that. even even that data that had been around a long time, we found a few errors in that late in the process as well. And, of course, all the data entry that happened to happen was, Jeff had a student that worked on it. I had a couple of students work on it. We had a couple of postdocs from NANP work on it. I mean, I entered data. I mean, everybody assumed data. It just—it was a large effort to do that to get started, really. And then once you have the data, then you can start asking, okay, well, what, what was wrong with the last set of equations? You know, or the last model? or What parts needed to be fixed? And, uh, I think Helen we decided that pretty much all of them had to be fixed. And that they all had, you know, updates that needed to be done. So, but we didn't—we didn't throw out the system. I mean, it's the, it's the same basic system we had before with. More amino acid stuff in it now.
0: Can you elaborate just a little bit on maybe two or the three big sections that you identified first that you needed to work on first to, to, to overhaul?
1: Well, well, the whole thing is a, a bit of a pyramid scheme, right? I mean, you start off with ingredient information, and then you try to track that through the animals. So you know we had to we had to get the feed library updated first And so jeff worked a lot with paul kononoff on that and got the feed library updated and helena and i tried to do stuff but we ended up repeating things quite a few times it seems like that it was like uh, the movie groundhog day where we kept getting up and starting over again you know but eventually we got there um, but you know the, the feed library got sorted out then we you know identified that there was challenges both with the microbial equations and with the REP equations. And so Jeff took the leads on those. Uh, He also took the, you know, the lead on the digestibility. We needed to to update the digestibility data for the REP and for the microbes. Uh, The composition of the microbes needed to be updated. I think Helen worked on that as well. Uh, Once it gets absorbed, then we needed to divvy it up into the various processes. So I worked on the milk protein equations and Helen worked on pretty much all the other equations. For all the maintenance requirements, and, and uh, you know, I think Jeff probably the growth sort of got left to the end. You know, it, it it sort of trailed along later and kept raising its head again. You know, for at least for me anyway, on the model side, it didn't, it, it was like a bad stepchild; it just wouldn't go away. So.
4: Well, uh, I'll jump in for a second, uh, Scott. One one of the things that I think was really an advantage moving from the old system to the new one. The old one was really you know, factorial in nature on a protein basis, but not on amino acid basis. That it it had sort of a slope response way to do that with lysine methionine. The new one, you know, is much more, in my opinion, sort of structurally uh, related to a true requirements system. So I, I think there was, by having virtue of all those data, to be able to fill in the gaps. There was we were able to do that. So. The Helen and Mark really, if, if, in my opinion, that's what they really added that really beefed up this new one.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you acquired the data? And I'm going to assume that you scoured uh, the databases, you looked uh, worldwide, and uh, what's the process looked like for, for coming up with the data, putting it uh, in, in a form that you guys can use and then put into the models?
1: Right you know, you guys can feel free to jump in, but I mean, we had, you know, a couple hundred studies to begin with from the old NRC. And then there was several efforts by multiple people to identify additional data. So I think Jeff and, you know, his student went through and looked for all the flow data that had been published since that time and anything else that got missed. And then uh, Lou Armentano and and people a couple people on the FAT chapter did a search, you know, for all the fat digestibility data, and then I had a student that looked for all the amino acid data, and then you know, we left off the, you know, the credits list, Roger Martineau, who's worked with Helen for a lot of years, you know, d- did another effort on his side, plus he did a tremendous amount of work on cleaning data and, and identifying problems, and so I, it just, I mean, there's probably so many people that got involved, it's hard to really lay your hand on everybody. Yeah. But it's, it starts with a literature search and then entering the data and then checking the data, trying to see if there's any entry errors. And also whether the studies, you know, a few studies got thrown out because they just like, there's something wrong with this study. I don't know what it can be. But...
3: So how, how many studies were included um, for, the, for the protein amino acid uh, model for the NRC?
1: Um, well, it depends on the part, but. For the for the overall effort, we're, we're looking at uh, Helen. I think it was 365 or 385 studies, something like that. There's there's over a thousand treatment means. We pay attention to that more probably than the studies. But of course, there was like 580. I think we used for ruminal outflow, and then there was some of those were you know fat oriented fat digestibility. They still had milk production, so we still used it for that, right? But it did. It, they weren't protein studies. There were some fiber studies as well that we used. So I I can't say directly how many protein studies, but certainly more than 600 treatments.
2: Yeah. And maybe I would would just add as well that through this seven-year process, we've been often teased that it was taking a lot of time to go through all that, but uh, we really felt that we wanted to start from the very beginning to assess where we were going and have like, the right data so it took a long time it just seems like a database but you know we put a long long time just to fix the database and what we realized is that sometimes we wanted to have a too quick start but then you do everything but you realize that there were a few things that you were missing database a few errors and then you have to restart everything over so i think that it was really a critical element of the uh, of the whole model to have like a good straight database that we could trust you know from a to z and uh it, it took a lot of time and, and as mark said that was like all of us it was our time the time of our students of our postdoc that weren't supposed to put their time in that but then we just pulled in in Shh. checking <laughs> <laughs> nobody's listening to us now <laughs> but uh, i think that this has to be uh Recognize that, uh, yeah, it took some time, but uh, we really, you know, Mm -hmm. we we worked hard to make it happen, so.
0: You talked about missing data. Uh, I'm curious as you're looking at the data sets and you you start plugging things together, did, did you identify any huge gaps that we just don't have that information? And so, and then I'll ask you, what were those gaps? And then, maybe a follow-up question. What needs to be done for the next uh, nasom that 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 we need to follow up on and to make sure that those those data are re- acquired?
4: one of the one of the gaps I feel is there there really isn't very much reporting of actual amino acids themselves. We had to factor um, amino acids from different ingredients from a, a database. And so a lot of people aren't reporting those data anymore. We, we have to rely on doing that. We, we have to assume that amino acids have the same degradability in the rumen and digestibility in the small intestine of the RUP fraction as the protein itself. We, you know, one, one of the limitations, we really would like to be able to say one amino acid is different than another, maybe depending on the feed. So. Um, I'm not sure that's going to be fixed in the near future, but it sure would be nice to go back to having actual amino acid flows and some of that kind of thing. That's that's one thing that comes to mind. So we we made some, some nice efforts to improve it. Uh, I didn't do this, but Helen, you know, did is uh, it, the way that you measure amino acids to account for how how they're lost during the analysis process—that was m- very much improved. Uh, so there was a lot of real science gains in there. The the techniques are there for people to use. So we just need to be able to find you know some people to get funding to do some of those key key studies.
3: So from a as far as the ingredient database, what what uh, what p- parameters were new in this? in this version versus the 01 I know I know starch was available now and that wasn't available back in 01 what what are some other uh, parameters that, that are new?
4: well I, I guess uh, you know starch is a big one um, and so so that, that definitely is, is so uh, one of the things I hope people can do in the future is do a better job of measuring the residual organic matter fractions so so some of that's laid out. We, we moved to fatty acid basis, so there's more fatty acid data for digestibility of fat. Just a, the, I guess one of the big things is you know the the previous committee really did a valiant effort to try to get data for digestibility of the RUP fraction. There weren't very many sources of data out there then, and so we really filled in that. That so in the previous one they they just to sh- signal users that we don't really know they they had these digestibilities in increments of five units. And so that's much more robust than it was since then. You know, Mark had a hand in, in some of that too, probably. But um, so anyway, the database itself is much stronger, but we still have a ways to go. And some feats, there weren't very many observations. So some of that could be filled in.
0: I'm curious, curious if the, the previous committee kind of left you a handbook, guys, these are the things that We were unable to uh, include in the last one, and this is some things you guys need to look at. And then, then did you put a a little handbook together, some breadcrumbs for the next committee?
4: (laughs) Well, I'll I'll go first on that one because I'm in my office, and it's kind of messy because that's my comfort zone, I guess. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be on camera. I would have cleaned it up a little bit. Uh, but, (laughs) But anyway, I have this big box sitting to the left, this big whole box full of stuff that Chuck Schwab sent me. I mean, if you if you actually look through it, it's amazing the amount of work that that was done by him and, and his colleagues that's embedded in there. So, so there really is a lot of that. I I think in the chapters we try to leave those breadcrumbs, cookies for people. So um, I'll I'll let the others uh, continue on that one.
1: I think in some cases it's you know large loaves of bread, not just crumbs that we left. <laughs>
4: You know one of the one of the
1: nice things i guess or one of the advances maybe that occurred more on a um, mechanical side or, or an approach side is that you know the modeling techniques and, and the approaches that were available and sort of had been worked out 20 years ago they're nothing like today i mean we there's been huge strides in that of course there's been huge increases in computing power and that's allowed people to develop these more robust algorithms and so because we spent that time and effort to collect the data, we had the ability to cross-check things. So another data set that got pulled in was Helene, with, uh, I think, again, Roger and, and, and others had collected a data set on splenic metabolism. And so I think there was 120 treatment means or something in that, you know? And so we had diets where they had fed the diet and then measured portal appearance. So we could take, you know, after Jeff got through with sort of going through the RUP and the microbial digestibility, and then looking at whether the amino, amino acid digestibility was different, we could then go and look and see whether the portal appearance actually balanced with that. And it did, You know, which was the problem before that Jeff was referring to, is that, that when they got done with all this factorial stuff of the RUP and the protein and all the amino acids and, and everything, it didn't actually match the flow even in the gut. And so they had to do an empirical correction. So not only do we match the flow in the gut when we got done, we also matched the portal appearance by and large as well. So we were able to cross check most everything along the way to to have much more faith now. And of course, that just took a lot more computing time and a lot more effort on everyone's part.
0: Jeff, you've touched on uh, protein supply. Um, If we could circle back on that just a little bit, what would you say are some of the Two or three biggest changes or revelations r- related to protein supply that's in this NRC as opposed to the last one.
4: I, I think one of the big things is uh, the the way we compute the passage rate. That's very different. Um, the pr- The previous one was was done in a in a very robust way. So not to diminish that, but there really is kind of no actual way to measure the passage rate of the so-called potentially degradable fraction. So actually um, I'll have to give kudos to Mark on, on that. But w- what we did then was make sure that the non-ammonia, non-microbial nitrogen fraction, that's our best estimate of what would be in bypass protein. Then we corrected that for endogenous protein with equations that Helen had derived. So this corrected version, Mark was able to then derive passage rates that on the on the whole would be able to resolve and therefore we'd get RUPs that would match up with the corrected non-ammonia non-microbial nitrogen fraction. That's what helps the so it's sort of like two two trains, one from the east, one from the west, and they meet somewhere, you know, when they're laying the track. That 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 really helped that to work. So to me that was a big advantage. I wish we had a better way to do that mechanistically, but it's just the state of, state of the way it is. We also um, tried to make the microbial protein equation more mechanistic. The previous one, well, it's not just uh, that one, but also beef NRC and others have done this. They've tried to match up energy in the total tract, looking at total digestible nutrients, and relate that as the main source of energy for microbial pr- protein produced in the rumen uh, statistically, it works out pretty well, but you know, of course, mechanistically, you can't have digested carbohydrate in the small intestine support microbial protein earlier. So, so there's some some things like that I, I think were uh, definite and improvements at least to let you know. You talked before about the cookies. I think to leave the groundwork for people to improve that. Like, like one place that we weren't able to do as well as I would like us to account for starch digestibility as as being affected by how we process grains. We all know that affects things, but we just weren't able to make that resolve in a way that, um, that connected all the pieces together. So somebody in the future hopefully will be able to do that and lay it in the groundwork of a more mechanistic microbial protein equation. That's my hope. The, the amino acid profile is different. Um, again, working with Helen and a student of hers, um, we're accounting for protozoa flow. That's, that's important, especially for lysine um, because protozoa have a lot more lysine than bacteria. So we're now attributing microbial protein sources as, uh, as a little bit better source of lysine. So that, of course, affects what you have to compensate for in the RUP fraction so there's some there's a, some real nice gains there uh, i think i'm sure i'm sure there are gaps that people will help to fill in later um that's that's kind of where where i'm at on that other guys you want to add to that
1: i think i think the, on the post absorptive side you know the you know the milk protein equation was a, was a big challenge really and that you know that occupied a lot of our time and. And then, because of the way we sort of approached it, you know, Alan came up with, you know, a way to address okay, well, how do we now get, how do we back calculate what MP is, you know, or what it, what it, what it, what the flow of it is. And, and even today, I mean, I think, I think it's better to think of it as more of a net protein system than it is an MP system, because to try to get to the middle, you're, you're coming from both ends, right? And the middle is the least reliable part, probably, but I think the whole system. You know, is is consistent all the way through. And so, whether we have exactly the right requirement and exactly the right MP supply, I don't know. But I definitely know that feed to milk is overall correct. Okay.
4: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one one of the points I made at the Discover conference is, you know, we really never do measure digestibility of RUP. We we predict it, and all the data, even you know the flow studies that we picked through to get these almost nobody sticks in an ileal cannula and and drives that so so we had to predict it the the data are more robust and if if they're off a little bit then they're off in a way that's self-correcting by the time you get to milk protein in the way that Mark described I I really feel like that's an advantage and the committee was always uh, always really careful to try to account for that so, Anyway, whatever it's wrong, hopefully it's wrong in enough of a way that that's sort of self-correcting, and and we get good prediction results.
0: Did you guys talk any about um, the next NRC, and 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 what the process had looked like? Um, I mean, this last one took seven years, right? And It was uh, sh- should we start now? <laughs> you know, uh, should, should we start that process was- now?
1: The original goal was to have them every 10 years. So, yeah, you're, you're about a year away from getting started because it takes a year to raise the money and get, get the committee selected. It takes another year to get going. So, yeah, I think you need to start next year. Yeah. Different people, though.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, Jeff,
1: <laughs> Jeff, Jeff said he'd share the next. I was just
2: that That's one point, too, that we didn't really have time with the pandemic and everything, just to have like a wrap-up meeting with uh, the whole committee that we're supposed to have once everything will be published and we'll have the software organized and everything that we're still working on, it will be to have like a post publication meeting where we're going to put all Mm -hmm. those thoughts together. And as you said, how should we um, make it happen for the next time? But what we really tried to do in this version is to have like, I would call really a biology-based model on which it's going to be easier to add things or to change things or to move things compared to what it was before. So that's one thing that Mark really worked hard on just to make sure that it's gonna be much more easier actually for the next committee to take what we've been doing and just move things along as knowledge will be gained as we know that it will happen. So I think that hopefully with that basis, it's gonna be easier to make additions, deletions, or whatever, uh, than than it was before. So, but as you said, this is really a big challenge is to think of how that should be done the next time. So it doesn't take as long and that it's, as Mark was saying, it was really a much larger commitment for everybody involved than we all thought it was to be when we agreed on. So (laughs) we'll see how it goes, but we really need this, this wrap up meeting actually just to give a hand to uh to give him but to help the, the next uh next next committee
3: it, Is the ingredient database is that an ongoing project or do you do you start from scratch with that
1: as well it it's it's sort of an ongoing project basically national animal nutrition program does a lot of that work for us well, at least the start of it. OK, they, they gather up commercial data and they, they create a, you know, an average ingredient. Um, of course, then there's a lot of fill in stuff like you know, you're not getting are you, you know, getting KDs and KBs from that database. So you know, that's stuff that Jeff had to work on and, and amino acids don't come from that database, you know, at least today. And so that was stuff that you know, we had to get from elsewhere. So I, you know it is ongoing and, and they're collecting it from commercial labs so I think the you know the proximate nutrients are much
4: more reflective now than what they used to be. And and one thing that you know if, as it becomes more data driven as as we get more and more new data that will be added they're also reflecting more of the nutrient composition of the feeds that are being used today. So What comes to mind, for example, is the corn silage that was fed 30 years ago isn't the same as the corn silage fed today. There's more starch and so on. And so it needs to be ongoing to help to continue to, um, you know, sort of converge to be closer to what we're actually doing. So a lot of improvements in in that way, like Mark said, with the feeding uh, feed testing.
1: Well, I think I think it should eventually for the next committee. It, it may allow them to to consider some regional differences too, because I, I'm pretty sure Jeff, the corn silage that we grow in the South, you know, with our our weather conditions, is not the same corn silage you grow in in you know the Upper Midwest either. And we never get as good a production out of it as you guys do. Yeah, you
0: guys talk about the changes in in, in feedstuffs. Uh, our company, Balchem, recently did a survey where we uh, analyzed methyl donors in, I think it was corn, soybean, I don't remember what else, Claim we found out that it was significantly lower than the currently in the NRC. So, I mean, I can imagine if, if it's true of methyl donors, it's got to be true of uh, a lot of different nutrients, even some that we may not be routinely analyzing for.
1: I think once you get off the proximate nutrients, then our level of confidence in what we have goes down considerably. So just to come back quickly to that, the, the overall process, I mean, industry needs to push for NASA to do another one, okay? I mean, if, you, if we think we really need to start in another two or three years, it has to be, I think, pushed by industry, okay? Because who else is going to do it, right? It requires some money. It requires a commitment. It requires somebody to ask them to do it. They, they aren't set up to do it Automatically, they're, they're set up to respond to requests.
0: Yeah, good point.
3: Yeah, and, and 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 during during the Discover conference, the last session, there was discussion around this. I thought that was a really good discussion at the end of the conference.
1: But if everybody sits around and waits for the next one to happen, it's not going to happen, okay? Somebody has to actually drive the process forward. To get
4: right. You know, that... that the nutrient requirements are supposed to be established on data. You know, you don't get to just say, I think it should be about this. You have to do the best you can to find those data. And we're not supposed to add safety factors. We're not supposed to be doing fudging. And that means that we need to have improvements where they're needed. So I couldn't agree more with what Mark said. It needs to be derived from industry for industry.
3: Jeff, how do, as far as the, the protein supply, piece again. How is how's non-protein nitrogen factored factored uh, into the equation?
4: It's basically if it's all soluble protein, there's a certain amount of that that flows to the, in, in, to the intestine. And I, I, maybe Mark wants to address it in Helen, but I don't think we really address it as much as, um, as maybe we could. But at least this year, we allow some of the so-called A fraction of the soluble protein to pass to the intestine. And Mark derived that equation. That maybe he's better uh, to talk to talk about this question.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that again was more of a concerted effort because one of Jeff's colleagues at Ohio State worked on that as well for a little bit. But essentially, I mean, there's there's several pieces of information in the literature that suggest that some of this a fraction should pass. Right, it can't all be degraded. And even if you take like a thousand percent per hour degradation rate and you pair that with like a 15% liquid passage rate, 10% should pass, okay? And statistically, that's what we ended up driving was 10% without any guidance, right? That's, that's what it comes back as. So, so I, I think that helped a little bit. Um, you know, the, the KPs were too high. They, they should, you know, we, again, I think Jeff was alluding to this. When we measure KP most of the time, and certainly what the old NRC was based on, was the KP for marked particle passage. Well, that doesn't mean that's what the protein passage rate is, okay? That's what those marked particles are. And of course, those are heavily influenced by fiber and you know, other nutrients. So, so we ended up with a different KP than what we had before. And it you know it essentially reduces the RUP content of all of the feeds pretty much, although you know more for uh, the concentrates than it did from the forages,
4: correct, Jeff? Yeah, they're you know they're they're both decreased. So you know I don't exactly remember which was more, but yeah, both. We basically just
1: that one actually didn't require much discussion. We just did it, then it went down the road, right? And, and then once we had that, it allowed us to get you know arcades and KPs. So.
0: Hmm. Jeff, before we leave uh, the the protein supply section, so all the changes that were made from one version to the next, how will that manifest itself in the field? What will nutritionists, dairy farmers see that's different from what we were doing before based on your recommendations?
4: Well, one of the things I think, uh, you know, we, we grounded all the flow data into actually, you know, we, we used all actual flow data to do that. And one of the things that, that really strikes me is, you know, I've heard it said before: the best source of protein for a cow is is uh, starch. But as you add more starch, you you tend to, you know, actually lower the efficiency of microbial protein synthesis. So you don't get as, according to the prediction, you don't get as much as you might think. So, so one of the things I, I think is good we're going to see is we really need to have a good balance between ruminated starch and and Know, effective fiber and, and forage. So we're gonna, I think it's gonna emphasize the role of forage, not just to keep the rumen healthy, but also as a source of microbial protein. So that, that's one of the things I anticipate will work out. Um, there's some issues with digestibility of the RUP. We have to use book values that we had. Like I said, we, we don't have a bunch of data from studies for that. I, so I think on the on the on that standpoint, people are still going to have to be testing for it to make sure that the sources they're using are, are appropriate and you know highly digestible at the RUP fraction. So I think we're going to continue to see testing for those kind of things. And um, I guess that's the best way I can answer it. Maybe if one of the other two wants to chime in and help me out, but uh, that's that's how I would think of it.
3: Jeff, I'm I'm curious. What so? What methods do you recommend uh, for testing RUP digestibility?
4: That's a tough one. Um, so you know, we're we're still trying to figure out the best way to do this for all feeds. So, so I, I kind of like the mobile bag technique as a way to for some feeds that they, they there's really not a good way to do otherwise. So we're going to be doing some of that, but that's really hard to. <laughs> make work in the field. So we're still stuck kind of with the same techniques. There's the so-called three-step or the the, the kind like that. The Cornell folks have theirs that's, you know, pretty similar to that and pretty uh, pretty well worked out. So I think we're going to still see the same kind of approaches. I don't see a lot of changes in what we're doing, just that we need to continue to keep doing it.
0: Helene, if we can kind of maybe start uh, talking a little, little bit about the protein and amino acid requirements, understand that you were fundamental in in writing that section of the, uh, the chapter. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you had with that?
2: Actually, I'm just going to go one step back. If we look at the outputs of net protein that were predicted by previous models, uh, like metabol- metabolic fecal output or uh, urinary endogenous proteins, actually, all that was based on a very good paper from Swanson, but that, that dated from 77. So we thought that this knowledge actually should, there was enough knowledge actually to update those um, predictions. And also, I think we have a better assessment of what actually is metabolic fecal protein and what should be endogenous urinary protein. So we really started from the biology to revisit those numbers. And they were really changed a lot. Um, Like, endogenous urinary output is twice as much as it was previously, whereas metabolic fecal output is, is much lower. And also, again, based on biology, we decided to assign to each of the protein which is being exported out of the animal, which is creating a demand on net protein or on amino acid, and efficiency that would be similar across the functions again, based on on biology of how amino acids are being handled within the animal. So that meant that we needed not only to quantify the net protein that were secreted or gained, but also what was their amino acid composition. So we spent a fair bit of time on that. And we also assigned to those amino acid composition that we obtained from protein hydrolysis, as um, Jeff was saying before, a recovery factor to account for incomplete recovery. Uh, we all know that uh, it, it's it's not new, but we kind of forget all things that when you run an hydrolysis for 24 hours, you get numbers for all of the amino acid, but actually it's a, more of a compromise. It's not good. It's not perfect for an amino acid. If you want to rank feed ingredients, that's gonna be good. But if you really want to make a cycle analysis and see how much is being digested, how much goes into milk, how much is being absorbed, then you have really to take into account that your protein hydrolysis actually does not yield the total amount of each amino acid, which is into the protein. So we also added that factor into the amino acid composition. And then by a factorial approach, we could estimate what was the net output or the net demand of each amino acid. And then based on the database that we had and on some studies, there isn't that many looking at uh, splenic metabolism, what was the efficiency of utilization of each amino acid? Because there is a large variation which depends not only on the amino acid supply, but also on the energy supply, which is something that was not considered in the previous model where we had a fixed efficiency. So I would have liked to pursue a bit more the issue with the uh, efficiency of use, but you know, we needed to put a a dot at some time point. So we'll publish papers later on, but uh, at least we came with the target efficiency that we proposed for a what we call an adequate energy supply that would complement the prediction of nicotine yield that uh, Mark developed, just to have a guideline of you know what should be the efficiency for each amino acid that we should target. And if you calculate the efficiency based on the prediction of the supply and the output of milk that you want, what would be the needed theoretical efficiency? And if it's much larger than the target efficiency, it's telling us that the supply might be limiting. But it's not just like one amino acid, we want to look at it in a holistic manner as a whole including the energy supply as well.
0: We had a webinar with uh, Dr. Chris Reynolds from Reading University, and there was a, uh, a question asked, Mark, uh, r- related to your uh, comments uh, about that there's not really, um, the, the whole barrel and stave concept is no longer valid. And they, they the, the question was, and Clay, I don't remember exactly what it was, but the notion of individual amino acid requirements now passe.
1: Single limiting amino acid. I mean, all the, all the mechanistic data, you know, that's been collected at the cellular level and even at the, even some at the tissue level says, yeah, it's, that's not how it works. Um, so it, it's certainly an easy way to describe that, you know, process because it is sort of a complicated one. So, you know, I, I wish I could come up with some analogy that would go into every textbook in the world for the next 50 or 80 years as well, okay? So, <laughs> nice and, and not only for animals, but it's for plants and everyone. I mean, everybody used that. In fact, it derived right. from plants originally. So um, I, I think if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, if that cow was, or, or any mammalian organism, was that sensitive to any single amino acid, they would have all fallen over every time there was a little shortage of food supply and died, right? And they would have died out as a species. So they had to evolve methods to mitigate a deficiency or what we think was a deficiency, right? So if the cow's eating a diet and it's short of methionine, it's going to say, well, I'm going to conserve methionine. I will shut down use of methionine as much as possible with dysplagmic tissues and I'll shut it down other places and I'll ramp up my affinity for methionine at the mammary, trying to protect my investment in this calf, right? And so you have all these mechanisms that always resist. That, you know, if you put too much methionine in, it does the opposite. It, it increases its its catabolism. It, it resists taking it up at the mammary. I mean, it does still take up more. And you push some more milk out, but it's it's not as steep a slopes in general as what one would have envisioned with the old sort of very fragile system i guess you might call it so i you know i think that that concept you know at the very least has to be changed lou chastised me after the meeting you know in in chicago and said if you really want something new to you know to be taken up by people you can't base it on the old concept you just have to get rid of the old concept and blow it up and then build a new one so i was trying to morph it into a leaky barrel but uh,
2: He doesn't like that, so I don't know. Okay, I thought it was a good idea. I like the leaky barrel. (laughs) I think it's where the concept of efficiency is interesting too, because one amino acid is not limiting per se, but the, the cow cannot put out more than it digests or that it absorbs unless it's taking some on its body reserves. So there is always like still a physiological limit that we have to acknowledge, and I think this is where the calculation of the efficiency is making some sense. As you know, if you're having an efficiency of 95%, you know that if the cow is achieving that, it's gonna be taking some of the amino acid and its muscle or it will not get there. So, but you know, between of between 75 or 70 or 80%, depending of the amino acid, there is a margin where the cow can adjust actually. And I think this is really where in the future, we will have more studies and we'll have more um, studies. Yeah, because in, in one of the questions you asked first, what type of study we were missing, and this is one of the things that we were really craving of were those type of of studies on the amino acid where we would have only one amino acid moving at different doses, because often we have like one level here, one level there. So, but what happens between the two levels, we don't have a clue or we have, all of the amino acid moving together. So the response that we observed, we have to pull some hypothesis and to derive some equations, but there was very, a very limited number of studies where actually we had enough data that we're moving one amino acid supply at different (laughs) levels, it's really something that that we do miss. And also, I think we all needed to start somewhere. So first people were were looking like a silo of protein and amino acid and a silo of energy, but now I think we're really trying to merge these two because, uh, well, we'll see it with the equations with Mark and uh, also in the estimation of the efficiency of utilization of MP or amino acid, energy is is really a key factor in the efficiency of utilization of the amino acid as well. So I think that we need to merge the two now uh, and also we get into the type of energy and so a lot of work for new scientists.
4: Scott, can I just add a, add a comment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I really have to give kudos to my two colleagues. They really improved the efficiency concept and and the quantification of how to use it. That was, you know, listeners need to remember that that was a fixed value in the previous NRC. Everyone knew that it shouldn't be fixed. If you feed more protein, then the efficiency of transferring that into milk goes down and vice versa if you feed less. So that's really a big improvement. And the and the other thing, whatever model he winds up to show at the leaky barrel or whatever, people need to re- remember that not all of the amino acid goes into a protein that needs that amino acid at that place. There's a whole bunch of amino acid that does a bunch of other, other things. Like you talked about the C1 uh, transfers. I just read yesterday, um, from my amino acid metabolism class, that something like only 20% of methionine is actually used in, in protein synthesis. So these other processes get prioritized as, as, as you shift, as you, uh, you know, like what Mark was talking about, whether it's maintenance of the calf or maintenance of genetics for milk protein yield. Um, so again, my kudos kudos to my colleagues that that's really i'm not sure people are going to see it but that's really there and it's also the foundation of what chris reynolds and his colleagues are trying to do to lower protein and that is how do you you know how do you maximize efficiency and not not have some some kind of issue backfire through that so anyway i just had to say that so
0: no thank you for that
3: so, Mark, can you um, maybe, you know, for our listeners here, can you remind us what what is the uh, what's the new milk protein
1: yield equation
3: in, in
1: NASEM? It's just a, it's just a simple multiple linear regression equation. OK, <laughs> with like 13 terms in it and a, and a, and a, and a quadratic term. And, uh, but it, you know, basically it, it treats each of the nutrients as uh, separate contributors to the overall so if you think about protein synthesis, it's like an assembly line, right? We can't, we can't, assemb- well, we right, right now, We we most of us know if you're trying to buy a car, you can't assemble a working car if you don't have enough chips to go in the car, okay? <laughs> it doesn't matter how many wheels you have, how many doors you have, how many seats you have, the car still will not go, okay? And so, you know, I, I think that's the same kind of idea here is that that assembly line can sort of stutter maybe. And, and I'm not saying that this is actually what happens, but you can think about it that way, that it will stutter every time it gets to one of those nutrients that it needs that is in shorter supply. And it will slow the overall line down, And particularly if you start thinking about it as thousands and thousands of lines that are operating in that tissue. You get some of them slowing down. Okay? And you, you provide a little more nutrient, and it goes up. So the equation has to reflect that. It has to have this independent and additive stuff And then there's some quadratic stuff that is interactive, but by and large, that was the the best equation. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't magnificently better than, you know, some of the other approaches that may be considered more older concepts, but it did come out statistically the the best approach and it fits all of our conceptual data.
3: So from a, from a nutrient standpoint, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase here. So, so, uh, so milk, protein yield, it's an energy driven process. Um, And the key amino acids, methionine, lysine, histidine, isoleucine, and leucine, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um, Did we miss anyone, Helen? We had we had five of them, I think, that ended up in the equation. It's not to say the other ones are not important. It's just the data were not adequate to pull them out. uniquely. So we had isoleucine, leucine, histidine, uh, lysine, methionine. Yeah, those are the five. Okay.
3: So one one question that uh, that we've we been getting from people is, um, is there a weighting to those amino acids as far as milk protein yield?
1: Yeah, each of those terms in the model has its own coefficient. And so to two, the ones that you can expect to see bigger responses per unit of, of absorbed supply are methionine and histidine. They, they both generate about a, a two to one response, right? Two grams of protein per gram of absorbed. Uh, isoleucine and leucine are, and lysine are all closer to one. So if you're going to add something, you know, if it's expensive, you know, then pick the one that has the biggest response, right? If, if, if lysine's cheap or something else is cheap, you know, I, I know like there's been interest in in tryptophan and threonine because or at least tryptophan if I remember right because it's really cheap to press to, uh, to produce I guess it's a byproduct of some other things they're already doing so they'd love to have tryptophan in it. well there's no da- you know to Jeff's point there's no data like I, I think the feed data maybe is okay on tryptophan there is not a shred of believable tryptophan data from mouth to milk, okay. After that, I mean, maybe milk's okay and mouse okay, but nothing in between. There was nothing to cross-check on that all the way through. Yeah. It showed up as significant in the milk protein equation, but none of us trust it. Okay, so it could just be an artifact of something else.
2: But. Yeah, and, and I would just add, this is my bias, obviously. You know. Uh, check for what is the less expensive, but the least expensive. But then just make sure that you check the efficiency because if you put a lot of lysine, for example, because it's really cheap, but then you don't have enough methionine, you can end up with a nice predicted nicotine yield, but your efficiency of methionine is at 95 percent because you put all cheap stuff that has a lot of lysine but not enough methionine, then. You know, you're going to be away from the target efficiency, so it, it really needs to be balanced with the two concepts.
1: Yeah, and that, that's something that we struggled with, and that we didn't really have adequate data to address. Is that that sort of interaction, right? I mean, the the stats say there's not really a very strong interaction, but we know there is. When you get really far away, I mean, if you do a if you create an imbalance, it's going to have negative effects on the animal. You know, maybe that's at only at intake. I don't know, but we know you can't just like say, okay, well let's put in, you know, a kilogram of thionine, okay? Even if we could afford it, it's, it's not gonna make the animal operate well. So yeah. we struggled with how do we sort of come up with this idea that there's a range, right? We don't have to be right on this specific number, but there is a range of the ratios that probably need to occur amongst the amino acids. And I think, you know, Helene's idea of using these target efficiencies helps you keep on that, you know, sort of on that ridge, maybe you might call it. You know, you got a ridge that's wandering around, and so you have a ridge there that's these target efficiencies. We can drop off of that ridge and still be fine, but we can't drop off too far, okay? And that that's the part we just, we couldn't pull out of the data. There's just, the data just were not strong enough to tell us how far away, because everyone fed according to the old NRC in most cases, right? So we don't have a lot of, data off the top of that ridge you know we got lots of data along that ridge but, but not off the top of it.
2: yeah and also for those amino acids that were not included for example they didn't come out being significant i think a lot of that is due to the fact that a large part of the database actually where we had one amino acid that was increased the supply was increased often it was like a uh, a change in mp supply so that was all of the amino acids that were also Increase. We didn't have that much data, for example, on phenylalanine. And when you look at the data, for example, maybe like the phenylalanine content of the microbial protein is so high actually that most of the times we do have plenty of phenylalanine. But we, knew, we know that if we run a deletion study of phenylalanine, we might deprive, we might decrease milk protein yield. But in theory, it is very unlikely that this will happen with a normal dairy ration. So couldn't, we couldn't catch that with a global equation. It didn't come out to be significant. But if you run two or three studies where you delete phenylalanine, it's going to be crucial. and It's going to be really important to maintain human production. But generally in the whole data set that we have, because of this limited number of studies that we have with just one amino acid changing, we could never catch that test statistically.
1: So even so, though phenylalanine is not in the equation as a driver, that doesn't mean you can ignore it. I think is what you're saying. Okay, it still needs to be along that ridge someplace. Okay?
3: Mm-hmm. Jeff, I want to go back to your the, uh, comment you made a few minutes ago about how only 20% of methionine is used for milk protein synthesis. So if a cow is deficient in methionine, what's what's the priority for for use for for methionine? What's it being used for metabolically?
4: Well, I was reading it was actually for humans, so it's you know human, a bunch of human nutrition people. So I don't want to transfer that to milk protein. But I was just making the point, like it's a bunch of it's used for cysteine or other functions, and that all those functions can get be reprioritized as they need to be. So um, otherwise, I guess I think probably be better. Maybe Mark, you want to try to answer that question on the efficiency.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that it seems like the, the more we go down this road, that there's not this, you know, we would like to say, okay, well, first we're going to do this. And then second, we're going to do that. I don't think the cow or any of the organisms work that way. It, it says, I got to do all these things at the same time. And I'm going to manipulate and slide things one way or the other a little bit, but not turn off in general. I mean, you know, unless things get really bad, right? I mean, if you restrict nutrients enough she will turn off milk production okay and, and same way with uh, gestation it'll it'll abort if you make the, the uh deficiency enough so i i think it's in terms of the methionine thing i think there's a, a certain amount that has to be used for that methyl donor you know and it probably is going to depend on other things as well and i i really don't know but you know all, there's a lot of these nutrients that we don't know that much about, and we certainly don't know the interactions, okay. we're Even with the amino acids, we're still trying to figure out the primary drivers, and we just don't have enough data to figure out those interactions. We can't keep doing, you know, I know we're, we're trying to stay a little bit more applied here, but we can't keep doing two by two factorials forever and think that we're going to work out very many of these interactions on a, on a surface, right? We're going to get two points, but Try to pull that out and make a surface response to answer your question, really hard to do.
3: I guess maybe maybe one final question is, um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we have herds out there averaging well in excess of 100 pounds of, of milk a day. And, um, you know, l- Certainly, lots of cows uh, and even groups on dairies that are 150 pounds or more. I'm curious how robust is the database, you know, from a requirement standpoint for these high-end
1: producers. <laughs> we had, uh, I think, the upper end of the milk, Helen, if I remember right, is like 110 pounds or something like that, 115. We don't have a ton of data up there, but we have data. Uh, but you know, if you ever heard this averaging. You got pens that are averaging 120, right? Which means right. individuals are are at 150 or something like that. We don't have any data like that. I mean, there might have been in those treatment means, you know, when when they were put together, but we can't recreate that out of treatment means from the literature. So, I think we have better mechanisms captured now, which would give one a little more confidence that it'll operate okay, somewhat outside of its its range, but. I think it goes back to buyer beware, okay? We we, we define what the range is, okay? You you have to decide how much faith you're gonna put in it when you start operating very far outside of that range.
2: But I would just add that in terms of efficiency, actually, even the cow is producing more, actually it's gonna eat more. And I think that in terms of efficiency, we should be pretty much on the same type of um, global organization. And also Mark, you developed like a scaling factor yeah. to predict those milk protein meal for the cows actually as we were discussing we had this discussion a few times you know we were working with cows of the past with published data for cows of the future and obviously the cows that have given us their data are producing less than the cows that we want to feed now and mark you developed a factor actually to take into account that um the prediction actually needs to take to include the factor that is taking into account the rolling herd average of, of, the, of the herd.
0: You know, I guess uh, we're kind of getting to the end here. Is there anything that we haven't covered uh, related to the uh, protein and amino acid chapter that you think the audience needs to, to know about?
1: I, you know, I think just to reiterate that, you know, both at the microbial level and at the, the milk protein level and, and probably at growth and the other functions as well, there's this interaction between energy and amino acids. and You know, we only, we only have an energy and protein at the microbes, but that doesn't rule out the fact that there might be amino acids that are, you know, that those microbes will respond to that we just can't see, okay? But it, I think we have to stop thinking about this first limiting nutrient. I know you asked me that question before and I sort of, you know, got off into the barrel stuff, but if, if we continue to think that way from an application standpoint, you're not, you're going to be frustrated with this model because you'll be able to change the energy and think that, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have this big change and it will be held up by the other nutrients that are there. So it requires a little bit different process. Very well.
0: Well, with that, we'll call last call. I'm going to ask each of you to give us kind of one or two real key takeaway, uh, applied messages, uh, uh, from the chapter that, uh, that a nutritionist or dairy farmer can use right away. And Clay, why don't we start with you? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm,
3: I'm certainly, am, uh, I'm, I'm excited about the, you know, the, the approach here to milk protein yield and being able to, to apply that in the field um, with the new equation that's there. Um, I do want to ask a question to the group, though. Uh, maybe for my last point here, I am curious, and Scott alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious um, how how you think this will be applied in the field uh, as far as software. Do you see the NRC, the NASM software, being applied, or you know, is it is there a plan in place to um, to basically get this into some of the other models that are some of the other software programs that are out there.
1: Well, I know from the, when we were looking for programming support to do the software, um, you know, there was, there was a couple of the companies, the commercial vendors that did express interest in providing that support. And, you know, at least one of them, you know, was going to charge less money provided they could get a license to put it into their software. So, so I, I think that, you know, is the route uh, because a, a chunk of the money does come from industry. Of course, those vendors do not want NASM acting as a competitor in the marketplace, nor does NASM want to do that, okay? They don't, they don't have software support. In fact, if something breaks on that software, National Animal Nutrition Program has to fix it most of the time, okay? Because they just, they just don't, they don't have it. It's It's like an end product. They don't even really wouldn't even be bothered if there was no software. It's us that say we have to have software to teach and do extension. So that software is a teaching and extension tool. It is not a commercial application tool that you're gonna to work with more than just a herd or two. So I hope it gets put into these other programs and done correctly.
0: Helene, what kind of words of wisdom do you have for our audience?
2: Well, I think that we need to learn how to use the efficiency of utilization how to calculate it how to deal with it um, and better learn how it's being affected by the energy as well as the amino acid supply i think we gave some target efficiencies but as for each amino acid but as mark was saying it's likely not just like a very tiny number you know we don't have like the uncertainty around it there is some uncertainty around it but i think that we really need to make sure that we're not trying to make the cow make more use of the amino acid that she has absorbed than what she can. So I think that this is like the type of guideline that we need to keep in mind. And we're happy that we could provide it for all the essential amino acids in a factorial manner. So I think that's uh, interesting. But because if we find, for example, afterwards that we have a better quantification of methionine, for example, as methyl done or whatever, we can just add it. In terms of on, on the model, and we can have another efficiency and, or another requirement,
4: and and work with that.
0: Thank you, Jeff. How about you?
4: Well, um, you know, just thinking and listening to what the other two said, I, I think, I think it will be used and compared. One of one of the strengths I think will be when people go to run simulations, they'll see what, one what this model predicts compared with another one, and then they'll try those under different situations, and they'll uh, they'll figure that out. I'm I'm always mindful of what somebody who I know who um, who, who fed a lot of cows. He goes, I really like the models because they help me think. And I, so I think there's going to be a certain amount of that that people are going to get used to, and they're going to continue to try. Um, the the other thing I wanted to point out is. We have a charge to use data, but we also are scientists, and we also want it to work. So we tried to find the best way that we could to, to make all those things function. And so one of the, one of the key points that I think is going to lead into the future, maybe it's more indirect answering your question. There's going to be study after study after study that does comparisons, and study after study that now is designing new objectives based on what this model says. And I think that's that's a, a big gain that's eventually going to be helping people into the future so at least at least that's my hope.
0: Uh, thank you. Dr. Hannigan final words
1: um, I'm glad it's done. my wife thought it, thinks it will never get done she doesn't think <laughs> we're done yet nor will we ever get. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know I I, I certainly want to. Uh, you know, give a lot of credit to, to Bill and Weiss and Rich Erdman as well. I mean, particularly Bill, I mean, on, on the software here and all the, he, he pretty much did a lot, in my opinion, did almost all the editing on the, the whole book. And it's, I think, 525 pages or something like that. And I mean, he just read through this modeling chapter again, you know, this week. And so I have trouble reading through that, okay? I just don't want to look at it again. He's read through it several times. So really got to give a lot of credit. Uh, from a field application standpoint, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the old, old equations were too sensitive. Uh, they weren't correct on average, and, and they also were too sensitive. So it it told you if you were short on protein, you were going to have this massive loss in milk production, and, and, it, and it didn't happen, okay? And it also told you you're going to get this massive gain if you fix the problem, and that didn't happen either, okay? So, so I think, the you know, probably the take-home message is, is that, you know, probably explore a bit more outside of the bounds. I'm not saying you should do stupid things, but the cows are pretty robust. So if, if you have a situation that calls for deviating a little bit from what you might, the model says you should do, I would give it a try. Just make sure you position things with the producer correctly that, hey, we're going to try this. This might happen, but it's not going to be as bad as what you would have thought.
0: Great input. Folks, I want to thank you for joining us here uh, this afternoon at the, the Real Science Exchange. It's, it's been enjoyable. It's been a long time coming, but it's been worth the wait. Did not disappoint. I disappoint. Uh, also want to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by once again here at the Exchange. Hopefully you heard something new, something interesting, something you can take back to your business. Also, as a reminder, we will continue to break down the new 2021 edition of the NRC over the, the next coming weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes. If you'd like to pre-order a copy of the new Dairy Nasum and receive a 25% discount, visit balchemcom slash real science and click on the NRC series for a link and the discount code. If you like what you heard, please remember to hit the five-star rating on your way out. Don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. Just, you just need to like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com Our Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continue with the ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchem.com/ slash real science to see the upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.